Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, and is titled Reducing Severe Traumatic Brain Injury in the U.S. Here's Dr. Tanya Popovich, Scientific Director of the CDC's Public Health Grand Rounds. Good afternoon and welcome to the CDC Public Health Grand Rounds. Today's topic is traumatic brain injury. And before we launch into the session, I would like to take a couple of minutes and have a personal story of a young girl who has experienced traumatic brain injury being shared with you. It was January 10, 2005. I was 17 years old and my high school basketball team was playing a varsity game and it was around the second quarter and I was going up for a rebound and as I came down, um, the back of my head collided with the top of another girl's head. The next day, after the day I got hit, I went to school and I was really sick. I knew I had a concussion because I suffered through a concussion my seventh grade year. I had all the symptoms, dizzy, nauseous. Um, I couldn't focus in school. I continued to play a second game after that, and I passed out after the second game in the locker room. Basically, I was bedridden in my house for about six months straight. I slept on the couch because of the light. We had to put dark shoes over the windows. Um, my mom and my sister had to help me walk around. Um, I lost my balance. I couldn't really get that back for quite a while. I didn't know it could get this bad. All athletes have a strong will and since we're young we know that we have to suck it up, suck things up whether you know you sprain your ankle or you hurt your finger you just go in the game and you shake it off and you don't complain, you don't cry but this is a brain and head we're talking about and you can't suck it up so unfortunately instead of missing a game I missed the season I missed sports for the rest of my life and I missed out on a great life that I could have had Athletes need to know, if you think you have a concussion, don't hide it. Report it. It's better to miss one game than the entire season. We actually have only three speakers today, but they certainly make up in quality for the five or four that we normally have. Our own Dr. Lisa McGuire, Dr. David Wright from the Emory University, and Dr. Art Kellerman from Brand Corporation. And each one of them is, as you will see, be covering a different aspect of how we are dealing with traumatic brain injury. Before we move to our spectacular speakers, we are going to move to our spectacular CDC director, who is not here today, but is going to provide his comments uh, that he has videotaped. About 1.7 million Americans have a traumatic brain injury each year. TBIs are caused by falls, motor vehicle crashes, firearms, and blast injuries, and the results can range from mild to severe. Some can result in lifelong cognitive impairment or even death. Severe TBIs affect families and communities and are preventable with primary prevention strategies including helmet and seatbelt use laws. When TBIs occur, early identification and management are key to minimizing secondary brain injury while rehabilitation is key to regain function and minimize permanent disability. Implementing prevention strategies and responding to TBIs is complicated by the complex nature of TBI. No one strategy will address all risks or consequences of TBI. We need stronger 
injury surveillance, more use of existing primary prevention strategies, and research to expand our evidence base for prevention. The role of public health in reducing TBI includes key activities such as supporting surveillance, identifying best practices, implementing and disseminating effective intervention, and rigorously evaluating actions to see if we have the intended impact. This session will discuss TBIs, their burden, promising strategies to prevent and treat them, and many of the challenges we face moving forward. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa McGuire from CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, and I'm going to talk to you this afternoon about the public health's role in severe traumatic brain injury, or TBI. The CDC defines a TBI as a brain injury that disrupts the normal functioning of the brain. It can be caused by a bump, a blow, or a jolt to the head, or also a penetrating head injury. There are at least one million TBIs sustained in the United States every year. These numbers underestimate the true burden of TBI. They do not include TBIs treated in non-hospital-based settings, such as a doctor's office or outpatient clinics. They also do not include TBIs that were sustained by military personnel that had been treated in either a military or Veterans Administration medical setting. To illustrate the magnitude of TBI in the military, the Department of Defense reported that more than 31,000 U.S. military personnel were diagnosed with a TBI in 2010. Finally, TBIs often go undiagnosed in the presence of other life-threatening conditions. At least one person sustains a TBI every three minutes in the United States. Males are more likely to sustain a TBI than females, and when males do sustain a TBI, they're three times more likely to die from that TBI than females are. CDC has estimated that 5.3 million people live with the long-term cognitive and psychological impairments or other long-term consequences associated with the TBI. Using lifetime estimates of cost of TBI in the U.S. for the year 2000 and adjusting for inflation, we estimate that the 2010 cost for TBI were $76.3 billion. Of that, $11.5 billion were due to direct medical costs and $64.8 billion are due to indirect costs such as lost wages, productivity loss, and non-medical related expenditures. Now let's discuss the causes of TBI. Falls are the overall leading cause of TBI among the civilian population. For example, actress Natasha Richardson fell while skiing. This resulted in an epidural hematoma that caused her death. Motor vehicle crashes are the second leading cause of TBI, and they're the leading cause of TBI-related deaths. TBIs account for nearly one-third of all injury-related deaths in the U.S. It's also important to note that TBIs do not occur in isolation. They may occur in combination with other injuries which may be serious or life-threatening. We will now look at the rates of TBI by age and cause. Falls are the leading cause of TBI. The rates are highest in children and older adults. Falls cause approximately 50% of the TBIs in children aged 0 to 14 years, 
and a little more than 60% of the TBIs in adults aged 65 years old and older. Motor vehicle, cause, motor vehicle crashes are the second leading cause of TBIs. However, motor vehicle crashes are the leading cause of TBIs for teens and adults 15 to 34 years old. Males aged 15 to 24 years old and anybody who's aged 85 years old and older have the highest rates of TBI death for motor vehicle crashes. TBI severity is classified as mild, moderate, or severe. Following an injury, classification may be based on the length and depth of coma or altered consciousness. It also can be based on the anatomical description of the injury or the functional outcome. Dr. Wright will tell us a little bit more about this in his presentation. So why focus on severe TBI? Many TBI survivors, primarily those with severe TBI, can face long-term disabilities. One study estimated that nationwide, 43% of TBI survivors who had been hospitalized had TBI-related disabilities remaining one year after their injury. Additionally, the cost of fatal TBIs and TBIs requiring hospitalization, many of which are severe, account for approximately 90% of the total, total TBI medical cost. I will now discuss non-fatal severe TBIs and how to reduce their consequences. Here are some potential individual consequences. Let me highlight just one, cognitive impairment. Cognitive impairment or deficits can include memory loss and difficulties in planning and problem solving. This can affect a person's ability to perform even very simple tasks, such as remembering where their keys are or finding their way home at the end of the day. TBIs affect the family, the community, and the society as a whole. For example, family members may need to adjust their roles within the family in order to provide care. A primary breadwinner may no longer be able to work at the same job, with the same intensity, or even work at all. Societal factors include economic stress, productivity loss, increased dependence on social programs and supports. There are three ways to reduce severe TBI and its consequences. Primary prevention, early management, and the comprehensive approaches to rehabilitation and reintegration. I will start with primary prevention. The optimal way to reduce morbidity, mortality, and economic consequences of injuries is to prevent their occurrence. There are several avenues for prevention, pre prevention interventions presented here. Falls are the number one cause of TBI. To reduce falls, exercise and balance training have been shown to be effective. One of the challenges with primary prevention is ensuring strategies are broadly adopted. Many are best implemented through policy, and Dr. Kellerman will address these. When TBIs do occur, rapid transportation to appropriate trauma care is necessary. CDC-supported research demonstrated that the risk for death of, for severely injured patients was 25% lower when the patient received care at a level one trauma center. The guidelines for field triage of injured patients provides emergency medical service providers, or EMS, with the ability to identify severely injured patients, then to rapidly transport them to the highest level of care within the trauma system. 
Unfortunately, nearly 45 million Americans do not have access to a level one or a level two trauma center within one hour, either by ground or air transport. These facilities have the resources to treat patients with the most life-threatening injuries. The Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines provide healthcare and professionals with evidence-based patient care treatment recommendations. CDC recommends the widespread adoption of these guidelines. Dr. Wright will discuss this as well. Each patient needs an individualized, comprehensive approach to rehabilitation and reintegration. This will help to ensure the patient reaches their maximal functional potential and learns to adapt to their disability. Rehabilitation requires a complex mix of services. Unfortunately, not every person is able to obtain these needed services. For example, some services are not provided in every geographical area, and even when those services are available, health insurance can limit the amount or type of services that a person might receive. Finally, the development and evaluation of new rehabilitation interventions, including the length of time for recovery, must incorporate the growing evidence of neuroplasticity. Now I'm going to focus on the role of public health. Our goal within public health is to prevent TBI and to improve the identification and management of TBI when it happens. Key activities in this effort are surveillance, identification of evidence-based strategies, and dissemination and implementation of those strategies. Surveillance is important to all phases of prevention response. We as public health do have a role. Many current data sources do not provide the level of detail needed to fully understand the epidemiology and long-term consequences and outcomes of TBI. The development of a standard definition for TBI in addition to a true national injury surveillance system will inform prevention efforts. Longitudinal or follow-up studies will help us evaluate interventions for their effectiveness. We have a role in developing, identifying, and disseminating evidence-based primary prevention strategies. Many of these strategies recommended by CDC's Guide to Community Preventive Services are being implemented in states across the U.S. We know that not one size fits all. The multiple potential causes of TBI require multiple interventions with action on all levels. Moving forward, we need to tailor interventions for high-risk populations and to evaluate programs and policies in order to improve implementation. Through research, public health can address gaps in existing policies and with state and local communities can fully implement effective interventions. We have a role in the identification and dissemination of early management strategies for TBI, especially through the improvement of guidelines of field triage and trauma system development. Access to trauma care is crucial to minimizing long-term consequences of TBI. However, this access is not available in all areas. We can also support the development of trauma systems integrated within public health across the United States. We have a role in supporting the rehabilitation and reintegration of individuals back into their communities. The current evidence shows that a comprehensive program of rehabilitation is the most effective way of minimizing negative consequences. In order to support this, 
We need to work with partners to identify mechanisms for reimbursement that allow for increased access to comprehensive care. Further, we need to collaborate with the clinical community to build the evidence base for comprehensive rehabilitation, including linkages to public health prevention interventions that support lifelong health. Partnerships are the engine that drives progress to prevent and treat traumatic brain injury. For example, one common definition of TBI can only be reached if all partners agree to implement it within their surveillance systems. Additionally, sharing of findings between the military and civilian medical communities can inform early treatment and rehabilitation activities. Public health does have a role. Our next speaker this afternoon is Dr. David Wright. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break.